0: How many auditors, how many people are actually reviewing? How many characters is an Ethereum address? 64? Uh, 42. 42. Yeah. We're all imperfect human beings. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. What is up, everyone? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're watching and listening to another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show powered by Untold Stories. Where together you and I and our awesome guests, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin, cryptos, decentralized, everything Web3, not just that, anyone in the real world too, as we call it, away from keyboard, you know, as we used to say back in the in the early 2000s and, and, and things like that. But to truly understand where this movement came to be, where we are right now in it, like kind of, I think, feel like that's the question everyone's asking lately. And uh, what's the future? Which is probably the second most asked question. And I'm really excited. Raphael's joining us today again. What's up, Raphael? Hey guys, how are you? I'm excited. This is uh, show number two, so excited. It's good to have you here, man. And Nick, our guest today, Nick Johnson. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, my pleasure. I, love, I was just saying before we started, I love doing afternoon shows. It's the afternoon here because I get to talk about kind of the the things that I've been up to over the course of the day. And you're also very involved in the industry. You're uh, the founder and lead developer of of ENS, the Ethereum naming service. And I think it's expanded now beyond just Ethereum too. If you see even my my venture fund, Druid Ventures, if you go to our Twitter, it actually says like druid.eth, that's our ENS. And over time, we'll see people stop using probably addresses eventually. But you were one of the first people to, probably the first to conceptualize it and, and build it out over time. Previously you uh, worked as a senior software engineer at Google before falling down into the crypto rabbit hole. And since then you've been steadfast working on this mission and do you do you look at it as kind of like a mission?
1: Yeah, I think that I think so. Yeah it's um it started off as a side project, but I I like it seemed like a really obvious whole sort of flaw in crypto usability, the fact that everybody's dealing with these impenetrable addresses. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very much you know it's it's evolved into you know my my uh, reason for being in this this field, really.
0: I think a lot of people don't understand still how powerful this idea, what this idea is to have the very name instead of having to use like a a Bitcoin or Ethereum address to have the name, but not have to use a a centralized kind of like service where you'd have to like go input your address and then register with them and then they maintain the database and you can't really passport that. But you figured out a way to do it on-chain. And that, I think, was the most powerful thing.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And the... The fact that we can leverage the same guarantees that smart contracts uh, allow for financial applications to, to ensure the security of your name and that it resolves where you want it to and that you have you know, absolute ownership over it is really powerful.
0: That's a huge thing. I mean, right there, like in, in smart contracts itself, you're going through, you're auditing a smart contract. At, you, th- How many auditors, how many people are actually reviewing? How many characters is an Ethereum address? 64? Uh, 42. 42. Yeah, we're all eventually imperfect human beings here, and it's impossible to do that in a perfect way, especially when we've seen so many of the hacks over the past decade have been from from like man in the middle attacks and things like that. Shoot, I remember sending—I forget which which blockchain it was—but if you se- if you f- mess up a letter, the, the 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 funds still go, and you just goes to like an address that you can never get back.
1: That's Ethereum, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> the, there's a um, much wider use of checksum addresses for using capitalization now, but it's still not universal. And unfortunately, like launch day, Ethereum was designed without any checksum built in. So, yep, we've all done that.
0: <laughs> what are you working on for 2023? I just worked on this crazy document today. I'll tell you more about it a little a little bit later.
1: Uh, the main thing we're focusing on is like we launched in, in 2022, we launched this uh, CCIP read. So basically functionality for having names off chains, so you don't have to pay transaction fees to set names up and so on. And it's really powerful because it makes it possible for wallets and, and exchanges and so on to, to give subdomains to all of their users for, you know, affordably. Um, and we're really working on pushing that out more. Uh, I've just been working on integrating that with DNS so that you can bring your DNS name into ENS without paying any gas fees at all. Um, so all that sort of like scaling things up, making it more affordable, uh, you know, eliminating the transactions wherever possible is our, uh, one of our big focuses.
0: Do you remember Namecoin?
1: Yeah, it was uh, definitely an early inspiration. Uh, I think one of the ways it fell down was by sort of being a free for all at the beginning, and the unfortunate thing is that often then speculators kind of you know strangle it in its crib because they register everything vaguely interesting and, and expect outrageous amounts for it, and then anyone coming along later is like, well, why would I want to be, you know, Charlie Shrim, nineteen ninety seven point yeah. three or whatever, you know, on the system that nobody's even using.
0: I remember that there's there was, I feel like if we had to put together a sort some sort of like list over the last uh, 14 years of since 2009, uh, we're in the 14th year of like since since the first uh, Bitcoin block. There has been like these kind of like checkpoints in our technological advances as a community, and so if we had to make a list and you start with Bitcoin, then you have like things like Namecoin. There's things in between Ethereum was like that huge change in the way even people looked and talked about blockchains altogether. You have like ENS and continuing on, you have things like Uniswap fundamentally changed everything, Chainlink. I don't know why I've been talking about that one recently. What do you think for 2023? I mean, where, what technology do we need to like break into?
1: I'm I'm hoping to see some real advances in in sharding and uh uh roll ups and so forth, uh, you know, particularly with like ZK rollups and uh, you know, data availability and stuff that will just make it way more practical to scale these things. Like we know the basics, but getting something rolled out to to actual like production level is is something I hope to see this year.
0: Are you seeing kind of like real world applications for 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 folks? using blockchains going forward in in 2023
1: I think uh one of my favorite sayings is that people underestimate uh, overestimate what you can do in a year and underestimate what you can do in 10 and I think, you know, there'll be continuing sort of slow growth in that area. But I don't think we'll see like a revolution and, you know, suddenly everybody in their dog is using, you know, Ethereum to buy property or something. You know, I think it'll be a slower thing than that.
0: But that's that's coming. And then you're seeing – but you talk about like property. I spent like two pages of my report today. I was working on this report kind of for going into 2023 of of where I see – where I think I see – kind of the major categories that we need to look at. Scaling is one of them that you brought up. I've been looking a lot into like optimism, trying to understand, and you have all the ZK rollups that are huge on, on like the blockchain level itself. But I'm also excited on like the, the real estate front too, because you have a lot of really cool projects doing, not just being able to do like NFT houses or, or offering yield, which is really cool in and of itself, You're seeing things like like insurance products like Nexus Mutual and some of these other projects launching that potentially could do homeowners insurance or whatever. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I would like that. I would really love to see some of those things push more into the real world. You know, like uh, coming up to DevCon, we had the whole, uh, you know, smart contract flight insurance and stuff as well, which was a really cool POC. And it would be nice to see that sort of becoming more real,
0: you know what was i mean what how did what was your first time you you touched crypto
1: uh back in let's see it would have been like probably like twenty fourteen or something uh I bought ten bitcoins for a hundred pounds each and uh because i was like oh Oh, you know this seems kind of interesting and i like sat on them for a bit and i spent a bitcoin on a deluxe version of a board game uh and then i was like this isn't doing anything and i sold all but one uh and the one i kept on my phone and then i upgraded my phone and forgot to like migrate it off so my first experience with crypto was was pretty typical like buying some nothing happens move on, accidentally lose some, uh, do the equivalent of the pizza and buy something that would now have been ridiculously expensive. Uh, And it wasn't until much later, like 2016, when I got involved in Ethereum, that it really clicked for me.
0: What made it click for you about Ethereum? You were working in software development beforehand.
1: I was, yeah. And I've always been interested in sort of low-level infrastructure stuff. And I've also been really interested in computing as like a theoretical concept and i guess at various points i thought about what well, wouldn't it be cool if we had some sort of you know computer where you could program things in and everyone would follow them you know without a trusted third party you know basically a sort of very embryonic idea mm. uh, along similar lines to ethereum but with no idea how you'd actually implement it and then come 2016 a recruiter for like a large financial services company pings me and was like hey do you want to interview with us to work on ethereum with us and i'm like really don't want to work for you, but this Ethereum thing seems interesting. Uh, didn't say that to them, wasn't that rude. Um, and started investigating it and playing around with it and writing code. And next thing I know, I'm being offered a, a job interview for the Ethereum Foundation, which was a much more engaging opportunity.
0: What was it like working with the Ethereum Foundation?
1: Um, it was It was an interesting combination because the people I was working with were brilliant. The stuff I was working on was amazing. Uh, at the time, the Ethereum Foundation was kind of organizationally dysfunctional. You know, like it was getting stuff done because they hired brilliant people at really kind of terrible wages uh, and because everybody wanted to work on this thing because it was so cool. Uh, and it's definitely improved in leaps and bounds since then. You know, that just with with the way it's being managed now, it's a lot more practical. Um, but at the time, it was kind of a, like... I want to work with these exciting people. I want to work on this exciting thing. And I'm willing to take like a 50% pay cut and deal with being a contractor in order to do that. You know,
0: and there's a huge, what's the word, psychological thing about that. Not, mm-hmm. not everyone. So you have like, I feel like this is not my opinion. I've heard this before. You have two types of people in this world. You have those who, you know, need to do paycheck to paycheck or whatever, or work under the security of like a large organization. And then those who can. Who can then go and constantly take those risks and not need under the security, and then you have those kind of in between who wish they had the security but are forced into entrepreneurship or whatever. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But not everyone can kind of do both. So here you had like working for Google is almost like the ultimate goal for for most people, probably including myself until I got into into crypto. Hell, still if I got hired by Google as a some sort of contractor, I would probably do it. But but now you're you're working for like this messy place called the ethereum foundation and shit there have been <laughs> books written about what the ethereum foundation was like in its early days i mean did you just feel like a fish out of water completely
1: it was definitely a big transition like it was the first time i had gone from like employment to contracting and taking a pay cut at the same time having to arrange like my own working environment you know working remotely a hundred percent for the first time and as you say you know this this kind of much less strictly organized and so on on organization uh you know it was it was definitely a big transition i think some of my skills you know helped me with that because i already was used to working more or less independently on stuff you know and i contributed to open source and stuff like that but it was still a bit of a shock you know and um i guess i sort of replicated the employment environment as much as i could initially you know and and you know Went to a remote off uh, to a, well so i i hired a um a, what you call it you know a hot not a hot desk a um a co-working space mm. uh you know went there every day from nine to five you know tried to get to know the people around me even though they weren't working on the same stuff you know basically sort of recreated my my work life only remote you know um and i guess as time's gone on i've become more comfortable with sort of mixing that up a bit with with what works you know i have a a small child now, so my and and I'm in New Zealand, so time zones are a bit weird. So my days tend to be a lot less, uh, you know, nine to five than they used to be. Uh, sort of taking advantage of that, but initially, I think the instinct was to keep things as much the same as possible, you know, and just the work changed, but it was still a big transition for sure.
0: Do you work for a Dow? Uh, sort of. Uh,
1: so I work for ENS Labs, and the Dow, uh, you know, contracts ENS Labs to do all you know, most of the ENS development. So, uh, not directly, but indirectly.
0: I remember there was, um, there was a point in which the agency that was selling ads for this show was trying to, like, a totally non crypto company was trying to submit proposals from DAOs for a potential podcast advertising, the frustration that they would have dealing with a proposal that has to get accepted Mm -hmm. instead of dealing with like a marketing company that just would approve a budget, it was just so funny. But that's where this is all going.
1: To a degree, yeah. I think uh, a, a lot of people who are new to DAOs have this sort of direct democracy kind of attitude towards it, of like every single decision has to be approved by everyone. And the the fact is, you know, as we've seen, it doesn't really scale. So we've, you know, with ENS, we've tried to like split the difference, you know, we elect stewards, and then the stewards uh, request budgets, and then those stewards can then approve expenditures and stuff on a, a smaller level. And I think that sort of delegation is like crucial to building any larger organization and, and hierarchy and delegation doesn't mean centralization as long as uh, the people who, you know, have the voice, people still have a voice and an ability to appoint and remove people and choose who they want to represent them rather than being told.
0: But doesn't it, do you notice that it it, it could create sort of like, do you know, you ever, aren't you ever in those working conditions where you're part of like an organization, but it's almost like a little bit of a gray area. Who's who, who's who other person's bosses, or it's like Mm -hmm. a little bit not clear on who, you know, if you finish the first draft or report, who do you report it to first? Who's the, like, you don't want to step on toes. You have to think about office politics all the time. So I get how this could change that, but I also like, isn't, The fact like the process of clarification of clarifying all that, it's like gonna be an uncomfortable process for a lot of people.
1: It can be, yeah. (laughs) And I think with with DAOs in particular, you often have people wearing a lot of hats, you know. So like me when I'm participating in the DAO, am I like founder of ENS? Am I steward of the meta-governance working group? Am I like delegate? Am I just random person, you know, offering my opinion? And sometimes it can be hard to keep all of that straight.
0: I like and I like the way it's done because, like, with your ENS, you could be working, and, and there's a philanthropic side of things, right? You could be working for charities. There's, there's governance. There's like shit. You could do homeowners association boards. You can do corporate governance. You can do fa- fa- friend and family relationships, create creator fan relationships, sports teams. I mean, it's it's endless. But the ability, I feel like, the exciting thing is the ability to like passport from one organization to the next using, like, a common Mm -hmm. ENS or, like, a common identity. And then you're almost, like, racking up, like, a history at the same time that's trust but verify, right?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, that sort of informal social sort of capital is is kind of the best way humans have to sort of solve the civil problem mm-hmm. too. You know, people are always looking for ways to formalise this and to have some sort of point system and so on and so forth, but they're inevitably gamed. And, you know, the best thing we have really is that sort of, you know, I, I guess like, you know, proof of credibility, like just basically building a profile for yourself as a good actor and as someone who does good work. And, and demonstrating your value to the community and it's it's informal and it's social and it, you can't score it or like rank it necessarily, but it is a, a really good way of demonstrating that you know you you should be listened to effectively.
0: Oh my God, 100% it, the ability I mean just the idea of gi- giving people some sort of like permissionless way into this protocol, Right, where they otherwise would not even have like a voice or a name, and then they have the same type of access as everyone else. And there's something like immensely powerful about that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, some of the, we're, we've hired people under pseudonyms like to work for ENS Labs because they've come along completely anonymously, uh, started working on stuff and done good work and demonstrated that they're, they're valuable, you know, that we want to work with
0: them. I mean, what is that? There's so many, there's like game theory involved in that because on one hand, you, you can be really excited about it like we are, and you can say like, that's really exciting that you can have like proof of work and identity of like real work of an identity that can be passported. But do you ever foresee like an issue with someone like stealing someone's identity or or someone selling selling theirs at, at the end of the day? I mean, or is that just like a function of it?
1: Yeah, I think, you
0: know, stealing and,
1: and account compromise is particularly difficult when you go by a pseudonym because how do you you know you then create a new account and you're like I'm the real person you know and this person's compromised my account how the hell do you prove that you know um that's really tricky in terms of like selling them I kind of think that sort of stuff is more rife when you're trying to give things definite scores and you're, you're trying to build some sort of a uh, gamified system, which is necessarily gameable. You know, if if you're relying on social capital, then the very fact of selling it destroys that. Whereas if you've got some sort of points system, and you know, oh, this, the, you know, he has an account that's got ten thousand points and can therefore participate in all the DAOs, then selling it is a really viable option for people, and they will sort of farm these identities.
0: Are the, do you think there are are gaps in in the in, like we? I actually had another guest uh we were talking the other day very heavily into um the whole bridging world.
1: Mm-hmm. Um you mean gaps and gaps in what sort of terms? Well,
0: basically being able to to go from you have EVM type chains and then you have if you have like the Bitcoin proof of work type chain, I'd love mm-hmm. to see the ability to passport from one to the, from one to the other but without wrapping assets, but we won't be able to see that. I don't think that's realistic.
1: Yeah, I think like, uh, you know, bridges like trusted bridges using multi-sigs and so forth are a, a kind of a, a code smell. You know, they're a sign of the immaturity of the system and the fact that we need to rely on them is is not great. You know, they're they're the best solution we have in some cases where the chains can't, you know, don't have the necessary functionality to integrate more closely. But I hope in the long term we'll see that sort of functionality implemented that that Bridges that have, you know, fewer trust assumptions are more practical.
0: That would be really great. It's really interesting because now that I think about it, dot-com uh, domains never, like, took off as a person's identity. Did anyone ever, like, thought think about that? I mean, you have personal websites, but they never really took off at the same time. But here you're having uh, uh, almost, like, the ability to own your identity and – that's a, that's the difference between Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think there's a couple of factors there. One is when the internet was becoming popular, um, creating your own website was something only available to companies and geeks, basically. So, you know, having a .com name as your identity wasn't popular because for most people it just wasn't practical. Um, and also because you know, DNS and DNS applications are targeted a little bit differently. You know, the typical assumption is that the company you use, Google or whoever, has the domain, and you are a user at that domain. You know, you're sort of a second-level second, second level citizen in a way where only the companies are the, uh, are the, the true citizens. Uh, and ENS is targeted a bit differently. We want everyone to be able to do this and, and do it directly.
0: Web1 was like the read-only internet, Web two was the read and write internet, and now, I hate to use that like the whole. I love. I hate going to like simple, simple things, but like now it's well. The only addition would be what like the own internet you own, you own the content mm-hmm. and you know the royalties that are involved with it, and that's really what this is now because you can have a direct relationship with Taylor Swift with all, and then all of her fans.
1: Yeah. Uh no, I think that's you know, that the internet you own is is a reasonable characterization of of web three.
0: It's such an interesting world that we live in. Uh w- what's on your future roadmap?
1: Uh besides the, the like CCIP read off chain stuff and so on, um, you know, we're we're launching something called the name wrapper, which will make it way easier for people to create subdomains and so forth trustlessly. So the idea is. You know, if I have wallet.eth, I can give you, you know, charlie.wallet.eth. And I can do that right now, but there's always the risk that I'll rug you for it. Uh, And there are ways, you know, ways to, to enforce that guarantee, but they're not sort of polished and mature. And the idea with the wrapper is it'll be possible for me to issue that subdomain and prove conclusively and very simply to you that I can't take that name back for 10 years or, you know, whatever period it was set to expire for. Um, And that makes issuing subdomains much more practical, you know, in a trustless fashion and makes it it sort of opens it up to a lot of new users to get ENS names without having to buy a .eth directly. Um, And again, combined with stuff like CCIP read means that we can have, you know, trustless, costless domains for for everybody on the Internet. Uh, And we're sort of seeing that with places like Coinbase rolling it out to all of their users for free. Um, besides that, there's the whole DNS integration stuff I, I alluded to. Um, and I guess the, the, our other focus is kind of long-term sustainability. So we've been working with the Dow to set up like an endowment fund that will help guarantee that, you know, whatever happens with the DNS registration volume, whatever happens with crypto markets, we'll still be in a position to keep operating for the next 20, 50, 100 years. You know, I'm really looking long-term on this.
0: That's a beautiful thing that you say that because you're not the only ones looking into that. So many projects and companies and DAOs have been through uh, too many bear markets that they want to like basically make sure and ensure their longevity.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like too many people focus on just surviving the current or the next bear market when... sort of protocols we're building things like ethereum and ens we ought to be thinking much longer term about that you know we don't know what's going to happen 10 20 or more years down the track and i want ens to be in a position where it's not vulnerable to to whatever may happen and also like the ens dao's goal isn't to make a profit but it does need to pay for its expenses and the more we can separate that from like how prices are set and so on, the more freedom we have to build a system that works best for everyone. You know, we don't want to be in a situation where we're like, oh, you know, ENS would work much better if we changed to this other registration model, but that would hurt our revenue, so we can't do it. You know, I want to be in a position where we're like, well, we've we've got this huge endowment. We're secure no matter what. We'll do what's best for the, for the ecosystem. Yes,
0: yes. You're, you're looking into the long term and, like, building out good solutions without, without being – because pol- politics can get involved, especially when it comes to DAO decision-making. Short-term uh-huh. emotions can be involved in stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of my biggest, has always been my biggest concern about transitioning to a DAO, is sort of governance capture and the risk that, you know, people have vested interests to to vote and behave in ways that aren't in the line with the best interests of the whole community.
0: Sometimes the biggest problem is turnout too, right? A lot of, not enough people show up for the voting.
1: Yeah, that's definitely an ongoing uh, issue as well. And, you know, as we kind of expected in the year since we launched, we've seen this, you know, slow attrition of, you know, the average number of delegated votes as people, you know, tokens move around and people don't delegate from the new account and so on. And finding ways to increase that is definitely a challenge because you want to do it in a way that encourages actual organic activity. Like, there's no point in rewarding people for delegating to uh, a wallet if they then just delegate to it an inactive one or they delegate to one that votes no on everything because somebody wrote a bot to do that or something, you know. And so making sure the incentives line up with the behavior we actually want, not just like an approximation of that, is really tough.
0: Right now, everything that that we're doing and, and you're talking about, it's it's very niche. We're very early. It's not even the first inning yet, if you will. Uh, but do you think that all the products and services that we're eventually building now will be kind of the backbone of the future kind of normal way that we're going to be doing things without most people ever ever knowing or caring? Almost like how we don't go to conferences about the internet anymore.
1: <laughs> most of us don't anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's... um. I think that's definitely gonna be the way of things. I think it's gonna be a bit like, you know, pre dot com bubble. Some of the stuff we look at today is like an incumbent or essential or whatever will just go the way of the dodo and other things will become ubiquitous and and as you say, kind of invisible.
0: That's really interesting. I appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on the show today, Nick. Thank you so much.
1: It was my pleasure.